The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 3.16 through 4.6. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity." All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. All scripture is breathed out by God and good and profitable for teaching, training in righteousness. We have to tell ourselves that after we read a text like that. Well, um, We are in the book of Ecclesiastes, so you can turn to the middle of your Bible just about, just about in the middle there, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, we're starting in chapter 3, verse 16. And just to get you caught up, if you're just joining us or you're new, Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon, King of Jerusalem, a man who had everything you could imagine. His wealth was unsurpassed. He built things that are still in existence today. Now think about that. 3,000 years ago, this guy's ability in engineering, construction, architecture, the things he built last 3,000 years in the desert, right? It's, It's crazy. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. And Solomon is writing this in a season of his life where he's away from the Lord. He's just using wisdom and just searching out the things of the world. And he's describing for us an existence. He uses this phrase over and over, under the sun. Now listen, under the sun, he uses that phrase 29 times in the short book of Ecclesiastes. And it's his code word for life without God. Okay, life away from God, life apart from God, or I could say life after the fall. 
okay? So many of us look at our world and we see the brokenness and we say, what's wrong with our world, right? Well, Solomon's going to go into that with us. He's going to look at life after the fall. God created everything. It was good. And then not God's fault, man rebelled and we brought sin to bear on creation and everything got broken. Creation itself, mankind, relationships, everything got fractured. And now after the fall, this is the reality of life. Solomon is a philosopher extraordinaire going into the dark places of mankind and the dark places of the earth and saying, this is what life is like after the fall and this is what life is like away from God, okay? That's where we're going this morning. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump in. Father, you are kind and you are good and you are true and you are holy and you are righteous and your word brings life even your word that is confusing, maybe. Um, there's dark parts to it, parts that we want to push back on, parts that are we just don't understand, we don't get. I pray that you would bring light to this text, this 3,000-year-old text, and help us see the truth in it, and that you would speak to us from your word. We believe your word is truth, that you are a God who is there, you are here and you are a God who have spoke, has spoken to us in your word. We do not have to walk around blindly. We don't have to walk around stumbling like we're in a dark room because you have spoken into this dark room. You have spoken into this broken world. So help us unpack this text for your glory and our good this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, open up your Bible now to Ecclesiastes. It's good to be back in the pulpit. I had two weeks out of the pulpit. And uh, I'm looking in the future to find the most difficult text that I have to preach so I can just hand them off to Rob because he does a fantastic job of preaching the word for us every time he does. And it's a huge blessing um, to be able to step away. And I had a funeral last week and a wedding uh, down south. And so it was great to be able to step away and, and have Rob faithfully teach us the word. So this morning, Solomon is going to take us on a field trip. And he's going to take us on a field trip and he wants us to look at three exhibits of mankind. He says three times in our passage today, I saw, I saw, I saw. That's the three exhibits he's going to bring us to. And the question I'll pose to you this morning is, will you dare to look? Will you dare to look? See, many of us, have a very sentimental view of life because we keep our eyes closed much of the time or we turn away from the things that shock our middle-class sensibilities. Flannery O'Connor, the University of Iowa grad who is known for her powerful storytelling and brilliant writing, she defines sentimentality as, quote, a distortion in the direction of an overemphasis on innocence. Now, you might be asking, who really cares? So what if I have a sentimental view of life? Well, I care for at least three reasons, and I think you should too. First, the sentimental view of life is a distortion of reality. You can only maintain it if you steer clear of reality. You have to avoid much of the news, you have to avoid any word of tragedy, malevolence, or evil that you hear. And the more you avoid reality, the less real 
you become. Have you ever met a person who doesn't like darkness, doesn't like evil? So every time you bring up something, they kind of put rainbows, they shine a rainbow on it. They kind of like sidestep it and ooh, right? Like they can't deal with reality. And that leads me to the second reason. People with a sentimental view of life aren't prepared for the complexities and the darkness of real life. They aren't prepared for loss. They aren't prepared for death. They aren't prepared to endure the difficulty that is required to live life with both eyes wide open and then to live your life in such a way that you can actually push back darkness and fight for justice when it's needed. And lastly, maybe most importantly, if you have a charmed, sentimental view of life, the good news of the gospel never really seems as good as it is. It's kind of like the offer of a steak dinner to someone who just ate fast food. It sounds kind of good, but it's not really going to change your life that much. And the gospel is the greatest news in the world when it is told within the backdrop of reality. The backdrop of the three exhibits Solomon is going to take us to this morning. So the question remains, will you keep your eyes open? And will you look? Let's go to our text. Exhibit one. Now, are we buckled? Are we ready for this? We're jumping in, okay? He's been building up to this for three chapters, and we're jumping in. It's going to hit us in the face. And here's exhibit one Solomon takes us to. There is no true justice under the sun. Verse 16. Moreover, so he's continuing his argument for the last few weeks. I saw, there it is, first exhibit, under the sun, life away from God, life after the fall, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon here, now this is interesting because Solomon, is, he's the king. He is the he is, this, he is sitting in the seat of righteousness. He's sitting in the seat of justice. And when he looks upon the world, and he looks upon specifically here the courts of law and the justice system, and he finds wickedness is even found in the very institution that was created to dispel it. The justice system is not truly just because its positions are filled by corruptible Officials. The prophet Isaiah later will look back on this and he'll, this is what he says of Israel. <clears throat> he describes the wickedness in the place of justice in chapter 5, 23 of his book. And he says this, quote, in Jerusalem, in, in Israel here, they acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their rights. Solomon will later write in chapter 5, verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and right, don't be amazed at the matter. Solomon is drawing our eyes to something that most of us don't want to look at. Wickedness is so pervasive in society that it has even affected the very institutions that are meant to promote justice and protect the innocent. Now, 
I'm just going to say, things are not much different 3,000 years later in our day and age. Though we live in one of the greatest countries with one of the greatest justice systems on earth, too often, justice isn't determined by right and wrong. Rather, by how much money a person has to spend on their defense. The, wealthy you, the wealthier you are, the less likely you are to be convicted. That is unjust. That means there are people in the prison system right now who are there because they couldn't provide a better attorney. And there are people who are walking the streets free, not because they're innocent, but because they had the best defense attorney who found the best loopholes because they had the most money to provide that. That's unjust. That's wicked. Solomon looks at it and says, that's wicked. And sometimes even those who have been given power and authority to protect and serve our communities, those who are supposed to be in the place of righteousness, they do heinous and horrible things. Just this week, the Golden State Killer was caught and arrested after eluding capture for over 40 years. He broke into hundreds of homes. He raped almost 50 women. He murdered at least 12 people during his reign of terror. And this week we learned that he was a police officer. Solomon looks at this and says, wickedness is found even in the place of righteousness and justice, and this should not be. And what comes into your mind when you think about such thing, Solomon has two responses, and I like it. First, he kind of has this catechism answer that kind of pops out, and then he processes the view, from a, processes this information from a secular viewpoint, from life under the sun. Let's look at his first response, his catechism answer. He sees this, and he says, verse 17, I said in my heart, God, oh, God, so now we're not talking about just under the sun. He's bringing God into it. God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there, and this connects it back to last week. There is a time for every matter and for every work. There's a season, there's a time for it. God is going to judge and make Things right. Now, this is his catechism answer. Okay? This seems to me to be a Bible answer that had been deeply lodged in his soul from growing up with David as his father. Now we know David wrote many psalms and no doubt sung them to his sons and daughters to teach them about God. Uh, David wrote Psalm, let's turn to Psalm 58, or I'm going to, we can put it up on the screen. This is a Psalm that very few of us will read in our quiet time and find much encouragement in it. Uh, but it's a Psalm that David wrote, and it's something that he would have sung. And, he, they, and the Psalms, if you didn't know, the Psalms were the songbook of the Old Testament. They're meant to be sung. That's how they were memorized by children. By, so no doubt Solomon had sung these, and he had these memorized. And David here is praying to God, when he sees the oppression, people are coming against him. There's all kind of up, uh, he's, he's uh, being mistreated. And he's got all these enemies. And this is what he says. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? And that's a little G. He's speaking to men. He's speaking to lords. He's speaking to the rulers of the nations. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? 
He's questioning them. He sees the injustice. No, in your hearts, you rulers, he's talking about, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. So he's saying people are, some people are born wicked and they're messed up from the womb. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. Nobody control, can, can control the wicked. Nobody can stop these evildoers from doing what they're doing. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. What's he saying? He's saying, render them helpless. Render them unable to do more harm. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord, these young men who are running wild. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When God aims his arrows, let them, or I'm sorry, when that man aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them not work. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. You should add that to your prayer life. I'm just saying, that's, that's good. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner that your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. And then look, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance of God. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. David is saying, when you look at the injustice of the world, we long for God to come and slay the enemy. That's what he's saying. Destroy the wicked to stop the violence, to stop the destruction. And so it seems that David's good theology, David's prayer life have kind of seeped into his son Solomon. And Solomon, when he sees the oppression, he responds like David. He responds like with a Bible verse, with a catechism answer. All right, God, judge the earth. Judge it. Make it right. But the thing about catechism answers is that they may be right, but many times you don't have the capacity at the moment to really understand just how right they are. See, they may be true, but that doesn't mean you believe them. But then someday, maybe when you least expect, these Bible verses come back to your mind and you see how true, how beautiful, and how trustworthy they actually are. And I think we're going to see that happen today later on in the sermon. But for now, Solomon blurts out this Bible answer and then he goes right back to his under the sun worldview and he gives his philosophy professor answer and it isn't that encouraging. Verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, again, under the sun, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. But what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So he's saying, animals die, men die. Animals do wicked things or brutal things. Humans do brutal things. They all have the same breath. We're breathing the same air. And man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity, vapor, 
It's a breath. Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust. He's quoting Genesis 3. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows? Who, here's his question. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This could have been written by an evolutionary biologist. This could have been written by an atheistic humanist. This could have been written by your neighbor. Solomon says, men are wicked. They treat each other like beasts and then they die like beasts. They all go back into the dirt. He says, who knows if the spirit of man is any different than the spirit of animals? When you look, no one knows what happened to that person after death. No one knows if that animal went up somewhere or if that person went up from somewhere. We're all back here speculating. And his conclusion is, enjoy your work. Now, I want to say to Solomon, that's all you got? But is that, isn't that all we really have? Isn't that what our colleges are teaching us, right? Isn't this what our parents are kind of teaching us? Just get a job that you enjoy, get a career that you enjoy, and just pour all of your, you know, attention, all of your energy into this career. Just focus on your career. But Solomon here, and we're going to see that there might be some problems with that, but Solomon says, he doesn't stop here. He, and so that's exhibit one, guys. We, we made it through it. We're all here. Hopefully you haven't checked out yet. We're going to go on to exhibit two, chapter four. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Here Solomon is looking at the power and class struggles of human beings And he's seeing that by and large, exhibit two, the powerful take advantage of the weak and the tears of the powerless go unnoticed. Keep reading. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort the oppressed, those who have the power, those who have the resources, use that power and resource to exploit those without power and resource. One group gets into power and they do everything in their power to oppress the opposing group. This happens throughout tribes in Africa, This happens in regimes in the Middle East, and this even happens in our own society, in our own country today. According to a recent Federal Reserve survey, the gap between the rich and the poor is the largest that has ever been recorded. The top 1% in our country now hold 38.6 of the nation's wealth. The bottom 90% of our country now holds 22.8% of the nation's total wealth. 
Hear that. Top 1%, almost 40%. Bottom 90%, roughly 20% of the nation's wealth. Huge gap. So what's the answer? Well, the universal human answer is this. Put my people in charge. Give my people the power. Conservatives say, we'll fix it. They gain power, they don't fix it. Liberals say, give us the power, we'll fix it. They get in power, they don't fix it. Males say, we, we can lead this, we'll fix it. They get in power, they don't do anything. Ladies say, about time, give us a chance, we're going to fix it. They get in power, they don't fix it. Heterosexuals say, we can do it. LGBTQ say, no, let us in power, we'll fix it. Capitalists, we got the answer. Socialists, we got the answer. Black, we got the answer. White, we got the answer. Put us in power, we'll fix it. But the problem is, when they get into power, they immediately begin to marginalize, to silence, to oppress their enemies, their rivals, and the whole process winds back up. Solomon looks at this human reality and he says, starkly, let's just look what he says. Can't even paraphrase it. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Solomon looks at this human reality and he says, I think it's better to not even be born. Now listen, if you have a secular worldview where God is not involved and this is all there is, doesn't this make sense? We look at the justice system and it's flawed. If you're born poor, you are less likely to get true justice in the courts, okay? He looks and he says, if you're born weak or marginalized, you're going to be oppressed. And if you're fortunate enough to get yourself into the position of power, more than likely, you are going to begin to oppress those who don't agree with you. And he looks at this and says, what's the point? It's better not even to be born. The first answer, he's like, well, just focus on your career. This one, he's just like, I got nothing. Solomon, that's all you got? He's got nothing. Now, lastly, you're not quite there yet. Lastly, we're going to exhibit three. Here's exhibit three. All, this one's just, this one's going to hurt, okay? This one's going to hurt. We ready for it? Are we, come on, I need some help. Are we ready for it? Okay, because this one's going to hurt. Here it is. And I can already tell. You're going to push back on this one. Okay? All human achievement is motivated by envy of his neighbor. Then, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's or a woman's envy 
of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon looks at all the work being done. Now he was doing a lot of work. He was, like I said, masterful builder. He's, he's criticizing himself. This is an inter, he's, he's has the ability to see into the motivations of his own heart and to see into the motivations of the heart of human beings. And he says, the number one motivation for human beings is that they want to have more or be better than their neighbor, their boss, their friends, their enemies. He's saying this, humans see life as a competition and you win by gaining more than the person next to you. I remember, now you probably don't remember this unless you're as old as I am. The thing when I was in high school, people wore no fear t-shirts, okay? These are bad things, okay? And I remember someone having a no fear t-shirt that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. That was his shirt. Rich has got me. Rich is shaking his head. He knows what I'm talking about. He who dies with the most toys wins. This is what Solomon's saying. We see life as a competition. Who gets the most wins. Now listen, I know you're going to push back on this. Envy drives everything. Listen, yes, sometimes people do things for altruistic reasons. But the majority of the time, if we really dig down into our hearts and assess our motivations, we just want to be better than our parents. How many times have you said, I just want to do a better job than my parents did? Right? We want to be better than our siblings. We want to be better than our friends. We want to be better than our enemies. We want to be better than our neighbors. What's driving this? Solomon says, it's envy seeing something they have and wanting more of it, wanting to be better at it. Now, this is fascinating to me. Solomon is taking the view of someone who doesn't live a life with God at the center. And his advice sounds just like what many in our secular universities, our schools, our families, on the internet, on TV, that are, this is the advice that we're giving to our children. The world is cruel and broken. Just focus on yourself. Just focus on your career. Just rejoice in the work because that's your lot. You can't fix what's going on in Africa. You can't fix what's going on in Sudan and Syria and around the world. You can't fix what's going on in the rougher parts of town. You can't fix what's going on in the Justice Department. Just focus on your career. But then Solomon goes a step farther and he says, yeah, you could try that, but there's a couple problems with it. First, those in power tend to exploit those without power. Well, that's not good. And secondly, the reason they do that is because their career motivation is primarily selfish and envious of others. So you can start an organization to be better and to to, to make the world a better place, to make our city a better place, but there's something wrong in the human heart that you could even start an organization to be for altruistic reasons and you get yourself in power and then all of a sudden you can begin to marginalize and oppress and maybe you get comfortable with your salary and you start silencing people and you can even create an unjust system even though you, in the beginning, you started it for altruistic reasons. So the advice here, Solomon's going to show us here, the advice to focus on your career doesn't actually make the world 
any better because you could just create literally an unjust system in your world, in your work, in your career. It's still unjust. It can still be oppressive and exploitative. It can still be driven by envy. Churches can be driven by envy. And then Solomon shows us here three ways. So he says, all of us are driven by envy. And now he's going to show us three ways that we are tempted to respond to that. Okay. Let's see if he's accurate. I think there's three ways you can respond to the reality that all of us are driven by human envy and almost, and all of our human institutions are infected with wickedness. There's three ways to respond. He gives us here three postures of the hands to illustrate how we should work in this world. How should we, we should approach work in this world. Look at verse five. The fool, stop. Here's just the thing. You don't want to be this guy. Okay? You go to Proverbs, the fool is a fool for a reason. You don't want to be this guy. The fool wastes his life. The fool is a slugger. I'm not going to go into it too much. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What the heck does that mean? He's not literally gnawing on his arm. This is the person who says, look at the unjust world. Look at the brokenness, this capitalistic society. Look at it all. Everybody's just driven by envy. We resign ourselves to laziness or apathy. The world is corrupt. Let it go to hell in a handbasket. I'm going to play video games in my mom's basement while the world burns. They fold their hands. What does it mean? He eats himself. It means you're destroying yourself. You're wasting your life. In a lot of different ways, when you resign yourself to laziness, you destroy your willpower. You destroy your self-esteem. I'm using that word very carefully. Your self-respect. Nobody's proud of the fact that they're lazy. You're literally destroying yourself. So that's one way we can approach it. I think there's a lot of people in our world who just say, to hell with it. And they fold their hands to the destruction of their own life. Secondly, I'm going to go to the end of verse 6. And I'm going to show you this one first. Two two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So first illustration was folded hands. We can see the wickedness of the world. We can fold our hands and give up on it, bail on it. This one, there's a, this is a posture that has two hands full. It's constantly grasping. This posture says the world is corrupt and wicked, but it's still better to have than have not. So I am going to win. This is the posture of greed and selfish ambition. This is the posture that grabs and wants more and more and more. I want to be in power grasp. I want two hands full 
even though it's all just a striving after wind since, wind, since I can't take anything with me. He who dies with the most toys wins. Is two hands full? This attitude is even alive in the church. Pastors who are so unhappy with the size of their church that they can never take a day off. Church members who call themselves Christians but their financial giving shows that the real first love is themselves. They've got two hands full of toil and money and their body is in their church, but their heart is actually far from God. The Bible shows us that a person who has been loved by God has had a heart change. That is why Christians give at least 10% or more of their income to the church each year. If you're not, and you're not convicted by that, and you're, or you aren't working towards that to make the changes in your life necessary and budget to make that happen, you have got two handfuls of striving after the wind. And it's crazy to me. I meet with some of the wealthiest people, and they don't feel like they... they, they Tithing is so much. If you're making that much money, that's so much going out. I just can't do that. That's so much going out. And I meet, meet with people, poor college students. And they're, they're poor and their ideas, I just don't got enough. I, I just can't give it out. I just can't give it away. I can't. And so we have them on both sides of the spectrum, two hands full of grasping, can't let it go. I'm too poor to give. I'm too rich to give. And we're all in that spectrum somewhere. The reality is, no, 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 you're too selfish. No one has ever confessed the sin of greed to me. Lust, adultery, lying, theft, all of those things have been confessed to me. No one has ever came to me and said, I'm greedy. And yet Jesus spoke about this sin more than any other. then Solomon gives us another option. And this one is called one handful of quietness. Look at it. Better is a handful of quietness. Now, let's just be real here. And this illustration means this, this handful of quietness. See that? Quietness. Boy, it looks good, doesn't it? What does that mean? That means it's half as much as two hands full. Yeah, you have earning potential. Solomon says, better is a man or a woman who's got half of that earning potential because this half is full of quietness and both hands full of grasping. This is half as much as the guy or the gal with two hands full but this hand is full of rest. This is having enough ambition. See, it's one hand full. Enough ambition to get me out of the bed in the morning, crossed hands, lazy. Enough ambition to get me going after things, but also enough quietness to enjoy those things and to be generous with those things and to give back to God those things. 
This is having enough ambition to get me to work, but not so much that it destroys my soul. I read a quote this week that said, the end result of ambition is to make a man unhappy at home. Women too. Just got to get out of this house. Go make something of myself. Can't rest. Can't enjoy. This is the Apostle Paul will tell us godly ambition with contentment in 1 Timothy. Ambition with rest. Ambition with Sabbath. Ambition with solitude. Ambition with generosity. This is working hard, enjoying some of the fruits of your labor, and giving a large portion back to the work of God in the world and taking a day off Sundays preferably, to rest and enjoy God by worshiping him with your church family. Sabbath is not a day on the golf course. Sabbath is a day worshiping God with your community. Now listen, so here's what Solomon says. Don't be lazy. Don't be greedy. One hand full, one hand open. Ambition with contentment. Now, doesn't that sound simple? We're all like, that. yeah, okay. Then we should probably ask, well, how do I do that? How do I find contentment and quietness of spirit? How do I get a handful of quiet and enjoy it? See, once again, we can look at Solomon here and we can say, Solomon, that's all you got? Work hard, rest, enjoy it, give it, be generous. That's all you got. Listen to me. This is, in a sense, if we stop here, this is a, the religion of moralism. Here's what you need. Go do it. Some of you in here, you're taking notes. All right, that's, I'm going to go do it. Tomorrow, I'm going to have a handful of quietness. <laughs> Good luck with that. I want you to remind you that Solomon, again, is teaching like a philosopher. He's great at asking questions, but not great at providing answers. All of his answers are meant to show us the barrenness of a life without God. And he has painted a bleak but accurate portrait of the wickedness of life under the sun apart from God. But here's what Solomon didn't know. When Solomon spouted off his catechism Bible answer in the face of injustice, when he said, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Remember Solomon's Bible answer? He didn't know what that was actually going to look like. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He would have been shocked to find out, I'm sure he did in heaven, that 900 years after he wrote this book, God would send his son, Jesus, from beyond the sun, from heaven, into this broken world, this unjust, dark world. And I just started thinking about that. As Jesus is outside of our world in the Trinity, he exists eternally, a part of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're born into this world. We don't know what's coming, right? I think that's why we come in screaming, though, right? We get here and like, it's cold, it's, it's harsh. It wasn't like mama's womb, right? But Jesus, he didn't, 
He's outside of it, looking into the brokenness, the barrenness, the vanity of life. And Jesus says, I'm going to go down there and be in it with them, for them. So what would it look like for Jesus, for God to come into this sin-sick earth and make things right? Bring judgment, bring justice. Jesus is going to come into this dark place. What would it look like for him to fix it, to repair it, to bring justice to the oppressed? What does it mean that he's going to judge the righteous and the wicked? Well, Jesus shows us a bit of this in John chapter 5. And it's going to be a long sermon. Uh, Let's go to John chapter 5, flip it over. I'm going to get there as quick as I can, but this is too good not to give it to you. First off, in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, if you're familiar with this text, what's happening is there's a man who was born lame, and he's by this pool of water. And there was that kind of superstition that whoever could get in this water would be healed. Okay, and there's a lots of people around there. But here's what's happening. Um, let's just read it quick. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five roof colonnades. In these days lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. Look, oppre- or people who have been suffering, right? You're going to see, well, let's just keep reading. When Jesus... No, I'm sorry, verse five. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So he's been suffering for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus sees brokenness. He says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool of water when it is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. This man is lame, and there was this idea that if he could get into the water, he would be healed. Well, the problem is he could never get himself in the pool. And every time you try to get in the pool, someone with a little more power would step in front of the line and jump in. You see this? This is oppression. Someone with more power is cutting the line. Someone with more resources is cutting the line. And so here we go again, another day of oppression, another day of injustice. What does Jesus do? Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. The Son of God speaks into the system of injustice and brings healing, brings justice, true justice. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, I wish I could play that music you hear in an old Western when the good guy and the bad guy face off. I can't do it. But right now we should hear, because that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, verse 10, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. 
Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So we got tension building. But Jesus answered them, listen, my father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus basically says, God is here to bring justice. God is working through me. I brought justice to the situation and healed this man. And now you guys are more concerned about breaking rules of the Sabbath? He says, I am God's son. And they're not happy about it. See, Jesus restores this powerless person, this lame person to health, even though it's going to cost him greatly with the powers to be. To live as a Christian means that we too work to bring healing and restoration to those who are broken. This is why at Sacred City, we work so much with 180, why we work with hope at the brick house, while we work in all these different areas, we want to bring restoration and healing to those who are powerless in our society because that's why one of the reasons Jesus came to this earth. Keep reading, verse 19. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. When he says that, that means, listen up, pay attention. What I've got to say is true, true. All right? I say to you, The son, that's him, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Hear me. The father and the son are one. God's not mean and Jesus is the nice one, right? Bad cop, good cop. That's not how it works. Jesus does what he sees the father doing. Jesus is a perfect representation of the father. Keep reading. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will, be sh- will, will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is a life giver. Keep going. The Father judges no one. What has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Again, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come unto judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, I want you to see this connection. Solomon saying, I look in the halls of power, I look in the halls of justice, and I see injustice, I see wickedness, I see brokenness, and I long for the day that God's going to judge and make everything right. And then his son comes to earth, and Jesus says, I came to bring judgment. The Father has given me the ability to judge. But he says this, Whoever hears my word 
and believes him who sent me, God, Father, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Solomon asked, who can know if man's spirit is any different from an animal's spirit? Jesus says, I do. I created man's spirit. I was one with the Father. The Father gives life. I give life to whomever I will. I know what happens. Jesus here is peeling back kind of creation, the curtains of creation, showing I'm the new perfect judge, and I can come in, and I can tell you what's true, and I can tell you what's real. Jesus says, I created me. I'm life itself. I give life to anyone I wish to give it to. 24 through 29, verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and it's now here. Look, 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 look. What happens to the man's spirit? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus tells us it's appointed life one time and then the judgment. Like we're all going to die and we all have spirits that will live forever in one place or another. Who, Solomon asked, who knows? Are the spirits any different? Jesus says, I do. I'm God. I've been there. I've created it. And then you look at verse, so we, we see this, ah, mm, you know. Mm. I want you to go down to verse 39. I just skipped a lot of verses for the sake of your lunch. Here we go. Verse 39. No, no, verse 38. Verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Listen, his voice you have never heard. This is, oh, I'm gonna keep going. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in me, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So Jesus is saying, if you don't trust me and believe in me, you don't know God. Okay? You don't know it. You have to trust me, believe his word. Now let's keep reading. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's them that bear witness about me. Look, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have, look, the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's speaking to the problem of envy. 
You all want the glory that comes from other people. You all want other people to envy you. And so you, you miss me. You miss Jesus, the humble one. You completely ignore him and miss him. And he says this fascinating thing. In verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then in 42, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Here's the answer. What the problem of envy in our hearts that's driving us, that we're grasping with two hands full, what's the problem? The problem is, what, the envy, the problem is envy, the grasping. The answer is this. The love of God in your heart can drive out the envy in your heart. But the question we should ask ourselves is, how do I get that? He looks at people, he says, you're driven by envy. You want the glory from others. I know you don't accept Jesus. You don't accept me. You don't have the love of God in you. We should ask ourselves, how do I get the love of God in me? The love that drives out envy, that wants to give generously, that wants to live with one hand full and the other full of quietness and contentment. Now listen, this is the good news. If you've, you've zoned out the whole sermon, pay attention to this. This is the gospel. Jesus didn't come as a brilliant philosopher to answer all of our questions about life. Jesus came to this earth to heal it, to bring justice. And you will never really appreciate what he has done and what he is doing if you continue to have a sentimental view of life. Jesus came into Solomon's world, a life of vanity, oppression, exploitation, and envy, and he came to heal it. We saw pieces of it. He's healing people. He's teaching things. He's doing this, but he healed it primarily not by oppressing his enemies and gaining some position of power and striving after that position. He the surprising thing was that Jesus, the righteous and holy one, brought judgment to this earth by refusing to judge. By being judged himself. Jesus didn't oppress, but he was oppressed for us. Think about it. Exhibit one, there is no true justice under the sun. No one knows this better than Jesus. Jesus was arrested, tortured, and killed in a gruesome public execution in an illegal trial held behind closed doors at night. Jesus was perfectly innocent and yet unjustly condemned. Think about exhibit two. The powerful exploit and oppress the weak. That is exactly what happened to Jesus. The religious powers and the governmental powers conspired together to crush this poor peasant from Nazareth who was causing a commotion with his kingdom of God talk. Jesus knows what it's like to hang stark naked, powerless on a cross while those in power mock and murder him. Think about exhibit three. Humans are driven by envy. 
It was the religious leaders' envy of Jesus' ministry that led to their hatred of him and their condemnation of him. The envy of men was the catalyst to his abuse and death. Jesus doesn't look at it and describe it like Solomon. Yes, we should just work hard, focus on the career. Jesus comes into it and experiences it. More than any of us here have ever experienced suffering, Jesus felt it. More than any of us have ever experienced injustice, Jesus felt it. Scholar Fleming Rutledge, I have a quote, says this, there is something sickening in human nature and it corresponds precisely to the sickening aspects of crucifixion. The hideousness of crucifixion summons us to put away sentimentality and face up to the ugliness that lies just under the surface. Jesus wasn't shot in the head. Jesus wasn't cleanly decapitated. Jesus didn't take some pills and pass out. He was brutally murdered. Why? It shows us the reality of the brokenness of the world and what it was going to take to fix it. That type of suffering, that type of injustice, that type of evil had to be poured out on the Son of God and he bore it for us. How do you get the love of God in you to drive out envy, to drive out wickedness? Look at Jesus. Can you look? Can you keep your eyes open? Look at his life. Look at the beauty of it. Look at him healing the invalid. Look at him stepping in the place of power and taking shots from those in power in order to do the right thing. Look at him teaching truth. Look at him asking people to come unto him and have life and have it more abundantly. Look at Jesus loving people and look at the envy against him and look at his brutal death. Look at the truth, the courage, the love of Jesus. Then look at his death. Look at the ugliness of it. The brutality of it matches the brutality we see in the world. And know that Jesus did it for you. And then look at his resurrection. Jesus took Solomon's vain life into the grave and planted it like a seed. Planted it like a seed. And that seed grows up and resurrects as an eternal life that can never be corrupted, never spoiled or destroyed. That those people who put their trust in him that get eternal life, he's building a kingdom for that oppression will never touch its gates. Evil will never enter in. Wickedness will never make its way in. Jesus' new life was the firstborn of the new creation. Everyone who puts their faith in him will get a new body that is free of sin, free of pain, free of failties, and will get a new kingdom that is free from oppression. And Jesus right now is making all things new. He's restoring the world right now. How's he doing that? Well, one way is he's doing it through us. We serve the poor. We care for the weak. We share this good news with our neighbors and bring them into this new life. We make disciples. We cross barriers. 
We plant more churches. We work to renew our city. And every time we see a person's heart change, every time we see someone repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, we know Jesus did that. He's on the throne. I give life to whomever I will. Oh, Jesus, you willed that. I shared my stupid story or I shared my idea of the God, you know, my, the best way I can share my, my, you know, my story or the gospel and that person believed and repented and I go, I did that. No, 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 no. I go, he did that. He's on the throne. He's working. Jesus just gave life to that guy or that gal. Jesus is on the throne. He's making all things new. And my offer to you this morning same as Jesus. Will you put your trust in Jesus? Will you believe in the one whom he sent? Would you believe in Jesus and the Father? Would you see the beauty of this in the midst of this dark world? He is making all things new. Solomon says, you can fold your hand. You can grasp with both hands. Or you can work hard and enjoy quietness. How do you get this? trusting in the work of Jesus on your behalf. I don't have to prove myself at work. I don't have to prove myself with my parenting. I don't have to prove myself with my social justice warrioring. I can work hard and trust that Jesus is making all things new. I can go to sleep at night and say, I'm going to enjoy eight hours while the king does his work unhindered by sleep. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Jesus, your song is the song of the ages. The God came into Solomon's world and renewed it from the inside out defeated death by dying, defeated oppression by being oppressed, defeated suffering by suffering, defeated sin by swallowing it. We long to live in your kingdom and survive by your power and your grace. Would you make us instruments of your kingdom here in our city? In the face of darkness and injustice, would we have the strength to stand up with our eyes wide open and look at it and do something about it and trust that the Father is working and you're making all things new. As we come to this supper, for those who have put their faith in you and have been baptized, Father, I'm, I'm reminded of who ate this supper with you on the night that you were betrayed, on the eve of your crucifixion, the eve of of you finishing the work of salvation for us, you sat not with rock stars, not with kings, not with the powerful. You sat with the oppressed. You sat with the sinful. You sat with the weak. You sat with men who that very night would betray you. And yet you were broken for them. And so this day, you sit with the weak and you sit with the broken and you sit with the oppressed and you sit with the faltering and you sit with the failing you sit with us and you break your body and you don't say earn this. 
You don't say live up to this. You say, this is my body broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. We want to do that by faith today. Would you stir our hearts to believe and trust in you? The powerful, omnipotent name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.